A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Book Nook. We're the Lorehounds, your guides to the archipelago of Earthsea. I'm David. I'm John. And I'm Marilyn. And this is our part two coverage of the first book of the Earthsea series, A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. In this episode, we'll be completing our discussion of the book before considering listener feedback. Be warned, there are spoilers ahead. We're going to be talking about the book in depth. So if you haven't read it yet and you want to preserve some of the mystery, Turn back now. Well, we enjoy discussing the book amongst ourselves. We want to hear from you, and there are several ways you can join the discussion. You can send an email to book at thelorehounds.com, or you can visit our website, thelorehounds.com slash contact, and you can either use the contact form or leave a voicemail using the built-in system. It's super easy to use. You just click the record button, and we can splice your audio right into the podcast. We'd also like to invite you to join our Discord server. The link is in the show notes below and on our website. We have a fun and welcoming community and a dedicated channel set up to discuss the Earthsea series, and we'd love to see you there. If you are so moved and it works for you, we'd also like to invite you to subscribe to our Patreon. It's the best way to support us, and for as little as $3 a month, you get ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, as well as early access and more. Head over to patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Of course, you can always find our ad-supported podcasts on our public feed. Just search for The Lorehounds in your podcast application of choice. As usual, we'll have our programming notes about our upcoming schedule at the end of the podcast. And as a quick reminder, our next podcast in this series will be covering the next book, The Tombs of Atuan, which we are scheduling for release in late May. So start reading now and get your questions and comments in so that we can include those when we record. Okay, everyone, we're back for uh, part two of this because we just can't keep things short when the three of us get together. Um, and as a quick reminder about our personal relationship to this work, uh, John is a first-time reader. This was uh, the first time he... Uh, I think you hadn't read any Ursula Le Guin at all. Not at all, this, yeah. Right? Yeah, and, and I don't think you were very familiar even with the the title. I mean, you might have no. had some vague awareness of it. Um, I read it as a young teenager, and uh, it's one of those books that I keep coming back to over and over again in my life. And it's been a long time since I read it. And so I was really excited to find not only my original copy, but to get all of those uh, good feels that I got when I first read this book a long time ago. And Marilyn, not only have you 
read this, but you have studied and taught Ursula K. Le Guin, correct? Yes, that's right. I read it back in the early 70s, um, but I taught it in a course on women in myth and fairy tale several times over the last 35 years or so. Yeah, great. Tolkien would be so proud of this Trinitarian approach. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Um, Great. So we're going to get we're going to pick up our conversation john is going to navigate us through the uh the various waterways and and islands of the second half of the book or wherever we left off and uh then we've got a bunch of feedback that we're going to talk about but marilyn i think you had a bit of a correction you wanted to touch on before we get into the topics yes i wanted to uh revise what i said before um it seemed as though Le Guin already had more books in mind when she wrote a Wizard of Ursi, okay. because she was naming, uh, you know, subsequent deeds of Ged, and she even talked about the, you know, the Atuan and the Ring yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, in fact, she did not plan to write any more books. These were just hmm. supposed to be random names on a list of a hero's great deeds. Oh. And it wasn't okay. until after the first one was such a great success that she decided, well, okay. And the inspiration for the next one came when she was on a trip in a desert. And I won't say any more because it can talk about it more when we start reading Tombs of right. Antoine. Interesting. That's very cool. Um, yeah, because she laid some, she definitely puts down some stuff in there. And I was like, when, we, when I read that, I was like, wait a minute, did she have this already planned? It seems like she had it already planned. But that's great, a great commentary on her writing is this, that she was weaving the world as she's going there. And there's just natural hooks that she could just pick up. She goes, oh. What is this? Let's go in that direction. And that's mm-hmm. that's really cool. That's exciting. Yeah. Because she's discovering the world as she's writing it. Absolutely. And she's discovering each of the islands as Ged goes to them one by one and so on. But she felt that any hero, part of the hero's story was all the great deeds that they did and so forth. And so that's why she was talking about them. Anything else before we jump in? John, do you want to take us away? I would love to. Let's head back to Earthsea and join our friend Ged, who becomes a wizard and takes a posting on a small island which is under threat of a dragon. He travels to the drylands to save a child and encounters his shadow. Ged meets the dragon because he decides to leave and he wants to make sure the villagers are safe. And the dragon promises to tell him the name of his shadow. Ged does not believe him. So he names the dragon and defeats it and its kin. Ged leaves the area pursued by his shadow. What does everyone think of this one? Why don't we go to Marilyn first? Well, I like, I mean, this is probably the most purely exciting, delightful, joyful scene in the book is when he overcomes the dragon, comes back to the island, tells them that, and they celebrate him all night. I can't remember the exact line, but it's something to be effective. You know, for this one night, Kid was completely relaxed and, mm. and delighted and happy. And, and um, you know, we really see him doing what wizards do. Right. And he is now officially a dragon lord. Because in Earthsea, a dragon lord is someone to whom dragons will speak instead of just eating. Hmm. Interesting. Did they make that clear? I feel like I, I didn't pick up on that. In there, it's, or is this something that comes up later? It comes up in um, in Tombs of Antoine. Okay, yeah. So I, I was like, did I miss that? So no, <laughs> thank you for for bringing that in. That's pretty cool. Yeah, 
And this this is actually a really momentous period in his life. Because not only is he taking the work of a wizard, right? So he's actually fulfilling, he's completing his um, social contract. Like, it's like, okay, well, we're going to send you off to school. Now you have a responsibility to the world. So here you are, you're, you know, you're a, a town wizard. You're just helping folks out and doing this stuff. And, you know, we have, we've got this really tricky situation with the dragon. Um, and he goes to the dry lands and he defeats a dragon. And he, the way he defeats the dragon is like, eh, it was nothing. It was easy. The way she sets him up and, 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 and writes it, it's just like, he's, um, it's, oh, you know, I, just in my spare time, I defeated a dragon. No big deal. <laughs> um, but he takes but a huge are, risk, right? If that was yeah. not the dragon's name, then he's dead. Yeah, he's, he's dead as Ged. <laughs> but he's he's pretty confident. Like there's no there's no question that he's going in there already knowing what he's, you know, like 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 a good sure, um, sure. you know a good good attorney wants to go in fully you know prepared so that they um, they don't have any surprises and they know they can complete the case right. Says so you can't handle your name. That's right. Uh, but he you know goes to the drylands right, and that's also right. a huge accomplishment. Well, just before that, that um, he was, in fact, terrified while he was doing the deed. Right. Sure. <laughs> so let, let right. us not forget this. Um, He's but like, I'm he, about to get roasted. <laughs> right. The, the, the younger dragons weren't, weren't an issue. But, right. you know, the big one, yeah. And for those who are interested in reading ahead and so forth, there is a really fun little tie-in in one of the short stories. Yes. In the bundled together really big volume of all the all the books and stories of Earthsea. Um, Which one was that? That story? It's the one that has a little tie-in to Tolkien as well. Yeah, and I'm trying to remember mm. the title, and we talked about it in the last episode, and I forget which one it was right now. Something names. Oh. Something about names? Yeah, the, I'll look the, it up the here The Law in a of moment. Names. The Law of uh, yeah. Names, or the Rule of okay. Names. One of those Yeah, things. the Rule, I think it's the Rule of Names, yeah. The Rule of Something Names. Like yeah. The other thing that I really loved was he has another friendship. Yeah. I love Pichardi? the relationship with, with Petcherry and Yeah, um, Petri, I couldn't pronounce his name right. Yeah. He um Pichardi. and he, he learns skills. He mm -hmm. learns he learns how to sail. You know, yeah. in, in Roke they basically teach you how to raise the mage wind and this and the other thing. Now he knows how to sail. Um, which is a little a little different skill. And right. he's really gonna need it. And it makes it all the more devastating that he can't save the child. Well, he also learns to be a shipwright. Um, yes. and yes. that's in one of my notes too, is, is that what I really like about Ged for his entire arc is that everything, every experience, he's a whole person and every experience that he had, no matter how random or, you know, um, uh, not planned, you know, there, he didn't go there to plan <laughs> to be a, a shipwright, uh, or to learn, you know, how to maintain, you know, boats and sail. But he incorporates that into his life, and that actually becomes a really important part of his life later on. Um, so he's always growing and uh, applying everything that he is experiencing to whatever he needs to go forward with, you know, with whatever his adventures are. Yes, one of Legrand's favorite lines is, nothing is ever wasted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that will come up again. Right. Now you, uh, these dragons are not uh, Saint George's dragons. I think is what you, you've uh, commented a few times. What's yes. our, what's your take on the the dragons of Pendor here? Well, 
They're an interesting mix, aren't they? I mean, on the one hand, you know, they seem to only be interested in, in you know, ravaging fields and eating sheep and yeah. collecting treasure and so forth. But the fact that the old one, you can speak to Vode, he will listen to you. Um, that's a little different. Mm-hmm. Now, he's not particularly uh, friendly to humans in any way, shape, or form. So, in that sense, a bit more like St. George's Dragons. But notice that Ged's not there to kill him. Right. He's just there to extract a promise from him. Right. Which is a different relationship. It's Dragons are far less animal in Earthsea generally. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, will come up more and more as as we see more dragons in the future. It's interesting because, you know, as a, as a longtime Dungeons & Dragons player, dragons, you know, there's different varieties of dragons and different uh, chromatic dragons versus metallic dragons. And, <laughs> but they were, they're always in the game. They were always a source of knowledge. Mm. Um, some of the dragons, some of the chromatic dragons were just, the, they're just going to chomp you and they're not going to tell you any wisdom or anything like that. But really old, ancient dragons. And I think this goes back to The Hobbit a little bit with Smaug, mm-hmm. right? That, yeah. hey, I know stuff. And if you want to treat with me, well, maybe we can make a deal. And, you know, what have you got to trade and, and what have you. And so I felt like this dragon had a little bit of that as well when he's offering Ged to name his shadow for him. Definitely. And of course, the question is, was he telling the truth or not? I was just going to ask that. (laughs) I mean, you know, for a bit, I was like, well, he was probably lying. And then by the end, I'm kind of thinking maybe he was telling the truth. Maybe he's been around long enough. He's seen he's seen a bunch of people go through this, this identity crisis that Ged is having. (laughs) And he says, buddy, just look behind you. It's, you know, look in a mirror. That's that's the name. (laughs) Yeah. And it creates a really interesting tension. Um because on the one hand, yes, if he does know, then Ged can save himself from becoming a Gebeth and, and a real terror to the world. Yeah. But that's not what he came for. And he sticks to the mission. Exactly. He doesn't put himself first. Right, right. And it's in keeping with the sense of um, your, your magical abilities are only as good as your word. Now, that's that's a, a common theme, but she doesn't emphasize that as much. And yet, in this instance, it's very clear. You know, he's there for a reason and a purpose, and it's not to save his own skin at this point. In fact, he's risking his own skin. Yeah, yeah. So it it wouldn't make any sense to, um, you know, to go back on what he initially said he was going to do. It real it marks a real maturation for Ged as well. Yeah. Uh, he's put the childish, arrogant. You know, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a kid who's got natural powers and they say all these things about me and I've got this ego. He's setting all that aside and he's actually stepping into adulthood. Mm-hmm. There are responsibilities that are greater than me that I have to, you know, I'm part of this society. These people are depending on me. I can't just let this be about my ego and what my desires and needs are. And mm-hmm. that's adulthood, yeah. right? That's when we really... We when we mature. This guy had more character development in twenty pages than Bo Katan <laughs> did in seven seasons of the Clone Wars. That's true. That is true. Yes. Definitely concise. And at the same time, it's incredibly poignant 
when he comes back and people are celebrating him, he's a dragon lord and he's powerful and we're making up a song from him at the time. And Petch Ferry's wife looks at him Mm. as if to say, you're a dragon lord and you couldn't save my child. Yeah. So it's, it's the humanity yeah. That she keeps bringing it back to again and again. Right. And also, I mean, it, it's true to life where our failures speak loudest to us, right? Not our successes. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Isn't that? Yeah. Alas, they really do. <laughs> what about the dry lens? It's such an interesting take on death and the other side of life. And uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting construct that she's, she's built for for the other side. Do you have some insights, Marilyn, on the mythology that that she's playing with here? Well, my insight is that she had no idea of the mythology that she was going to be developing Uh around the drylands. All right. So, the drylands as a whole really go a long way into the future. Basically, it's I think a way of visualizing death so that when Ged does his future thing, we have a much clearer sense of exactly what he has taken on and accepted. That just being that aware of exactly what it means to die in this culture at this time. Mm. Um, it's it's not sort of a future vague sort of a thing. As a wizard, you know exactly what it is and what it's going to involve. It's also interesting in that, you know, we've talked a lot about Taoism. Taoism is not a thing. It's a process. Interesting. Okay. And the two, it's, it's we, basically... We, we often, sorry to interject there, but... Sure. At least in our sort of Western North American culture, salvation is an object, a desire. It's a right. thing to 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 hold on to. Right. Uh, it's a it's a it's your new shiny new car. It's a brand right. new house. You right. know, it's a thing, as opposed to a a path a path uh, a walk sure. a a journey. Sure. And also, I think I think that you know we have primarily Abrahamic religions this side of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And and the side of the Pacific, I should say, and uh, we want to fit everything in that box, right? Even even Judaism, which is not so focused on salvation, but is more focused on that development, and and I think is somewhere in between those two those two paths, uh, in between the salvation and the process path. Uh, it, it still is in that religion box, right? Like you can't you can't get it out of that box that I think Taoism challenged challenges. Definitely. In fact, here's a little bit from that letter she wrote to me. She says, yin-yang isn't a thing, it's a process. Its book is called Changes. That's the I Ching, the book of changes. Right, yep. One endlessly becomes the other. As soon as there's lots of yin, it tips over into yang and vice versa. And I had, in response to what I had written in my letter, she says, you are right that the masculine society dislikes this process and wants to freeze it with yang on top, predominant. That's why Taoism, which embraces the changes, is always subversive, always a threat to the, mm. to the Confucians in Congress. Mm. And then she goes on to say, actually, I find that when I start wanting everything to be yin all the time, it's very salutary to read the I Ching or Lao Tzu and remind myself that it can't be. 
shouldn't be, won't be all yin, that as soon as it goes too far, it will self-correct. So the notion that there is a wall, to my mind, is kind of contrary to this yin-yang process change sort of notion. I mean, she needed some kind of an image that was not overtly Christian. Right. To represent this, because, you know, all three books, you know, death is definitely a major theme. Um, and accepting one's death, of course, is, is part of maturity. But that's why, over the course, the very long course, all the way through to the end of short stories and, and the other wind, she's constantly developing and revising her ideas about the dry land. All right, you've convinced me. We're going to read The Wheel of Time next. <laughs> oh, you know that yin yang are are symbols of uh, the magic system in The Wheel of Time? I did see that, yeah. Explicitly yeah. uses them, yeah, because it's supposed to be cyclical. It's supposed to be the same world as ours. And uh, it's so funny to see these parallels between yeah. Le Guin and Jordan. I really, I, I hope someone knows, maybe we should write to Michael Livingston, who studied Jordan well. Oh, yeah, I'd love to talk did, to him mm, again. Did yeah. Jordan read Le Guin extensively? Was he really versed in that? Did he take inspiration from her, or did he pull from the same sources? That's always the question, isn't it? And I would be very interested to hear his answer. Right. Yeah, Le Guin said, since I'm always, I'm always trying to take control, I need Taoism to prevent me from trying to control everything. Interesting. Wow. You know, I'm looking at my, uh, my copy of, of Ursi right now, and this whole section of him being in the dry lands mm -hmm. is no more than a page on, yeah. you know, on a small trade book. I mean, it's like a few hundred words at most, and yet she packed so much into this concept of death and the dry lands and, you know, the journey there and, and back and what it, it, what it, it, the toll that it took uh, for him to bring his spirit back. Um, just, I, I just always, 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 I'm just so uh, amazed. I have no words for the efficiency of her writing and efficiency is not mm -hmm. the right word. It's elegant. It yeah. is um, it's so simple. Economy, yeah. 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 These are utilitarian words, which actually kind of belie the beauty that she actually is able to, uh, to express herself in so few words. Well, she was surrounded by um, a culture of anthropology, of recognizing the importance of languages of different cultures. Her father worked with a variety of American Indian tribes in California. He founded the School of Anthropology at Berkeley. Wow, okay. And she herself um, studied French and Italian for uh, undergraduate and graduate degrees. So she, language was just sort of the milieu that she swam in. Right. But when, when she's asked by... Um, interviewers when did you decide to become a writer he said i never knew that i wasn't one I, <laughs> I i wrote from as early as i can remember i didn't know it was something you had to be specifically yeah. you know it just that's right that's how she, how she was right gift well we've lingered long enough in the drylands i think it's time we return 
to the land of the living. Ged encounters the Stone of Terranon, which also tries to possess him using a temptress. Ged narrowly escapes by shapeshifting into a pilgrim falcon and flies back to his old master, Ogion. Ogion restores him and counsels him to seek the shadow himself. This is the uh, uh, this is where the tempo of the whole story kicks in. This is the chase scene, right? Where our yep. hero has to, uh, you know, um, well, he flees in this case, right? He's he's running, and he's running blindly, and uh, the stone of uh, Terranon, I think, somehow calls him and brings him to it, right? I got big Theoden vibes from this lady. You know, so Theoden and Saruman, you know, she's being possessed by the stone. Oh, oh. Like yeah. Thank nice. you for clarifying. I'm just, I'm just working to make the <laughs> connection like, here. Sorry. Yeah. I, I'm glad I did clarify. But yeah, no, I mean, the minute that she started talking, I was like, oh, no, this isn't good. <laughs> well, I got huge Arthurian vibes because this is very much uh, from the, um, well, there's Gawain in the Green Knight, who's wife tempts him to do evil but even more so the 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 figure of morgan le fay who in some Mm -hmm. versions is arthur's half-sister um she's definitely a sorceress um and so she's tempting him to come into this castle and i was suddenly thinking hmm castle anthrax anybody um (laughs) from monty python Oh, okay. Oh, oh okay. is that the name I, of the castle? That was the name I of the castle. Yeah, detail. I usually watch as far as I fart in your general direction, and then I'm like, "All right, that's the last good joke." <laughs> my uh, my seven going on eight year old is um, I, I I should uh, show her that f- the farting section because I think she'll like that. That's all our jokes right now. Everything I falls back into fart uh, in your general direction. direction. Love it. Your father was a hamster. No, your mother was a hamster, and your father smelt of elderberry wine. <laughs> what does that even mean, the elderberry wine? Does that smell bad? Does anyone ever had this? It's very tasty, and it smells fine, but I think it's associated with little old women. Right. Oh, okay. Right. You All right. see, English can make it. <laughs> help, help, I'm being oppressed. <laughs> yeah, so Morgan the Fay, sorceress, daughter of sorceresses, Associated with the underworld, it um, interesting. Uh, it was ringing a lot of, of vibes for me like that. But we also learned an awful lot here about shadows and the old powers of the earth, yeah. which mm-hmm. we'll be seeing more of in Tombs of Atuan. Again, she was laying down tracks for herself, and she didn't even know it. Yeah. There's a lovely term used by Roger Zelazny that is the unpronounceables he calls all like the cthulhu and and like the whole the whole like (laughs) legion of these ancient beasts the unpronounceables and i i kind of just want to take that for my everyday life and i feel like that applies here these are the unpronounceables because they don't have names (laughs) yeah there you go there you go and it was interesting too that that in the lands of oskill where you know they not only used gold as as currency but are probably more shaped by this these older powers further out on the outskirts of the archipelago and of you know the the larger percentage of the population of Ursi that the um, you know the society there is shaped there's less fellowship 
money is a you know is mm. used as a currency, where in the inner aisles it doesn't seem like money is that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so yeah, she paints a very 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 different picture of a very different society driven by different values. Mm -hmm. We get a big contrast between water and earth. Mm. I mean, you can almost forget when you're in the place of the Taranon that, that, you know, there are oceans around. And yeah. Earth, Earth. Oh, that's an interesting, yeah. usually associated that. with women and the feminine and so forth. And so we're back again to the evil nature of women's magic. Right. Here she is. Represented she, by a, a woman to attempt just here. Yeah. Right. She can talk to the stone safely, but her husband can't. And right. Ged won't. He says yeah. the old the old powers of Earth are not for men to use. They were never given into our hands, and in our hands they work only ruin. Ill means ill ends. Ooh. Well, he certainly did learn his lesson after the shadow incident, didn't he? Well, that's part of it, certainly. Um, but the other point they make here is that the stone hadn't been able to use him, not quite, because he had not consented. It is right. very hard for mm. evil to take hold of the unconsenting soul. Right. Interesting. So if yeah. you think back to when he raised the shadow, I'm not he, sure you could say he was consenting, but he certainly wasn't resisting. Well, but part it was of himself did consent, right? Yeah. He wanted power. Yes. And, and, what and, he, and that was the part of him that became the shadow. So I guess he did consent, just not his current consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> He certainly didn't say, he didn't really didn't know what he was going to, you know, run up against if he did say yes. Sure. And then also, the old powers will not cross over the sea, being yeah. bound each to an island, a certain place, a cave, a right. stone, welling spring. Again, evil won't cross water in the same way that the, the flappy things that come out of the tower that remind me yep. of Tolkien's spell beasts, they mm -hmm. don't cross water. So she's drawing on a lot of familiar um, right. ideas. I get right very here. Cthulhu vibes from the from the flappy beasts and the <laughs> and the stone itself, but uh -huh. it just that old like you were saying, John, that old unspeakable evil. Just the it's formless, it's it's shapeless, it's it's malevolent, and uh, if you really did see it, uh, it would drive you instantly mad. Being a mortal, you know, person, hmm. there's just no way for our consciousness to to grasp or understand what it is that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I have to confess, I have never read any Cthulhu. I, I've not read a lot of... Um, who's the author blanking the name? Um, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Lovecraft. Don't uh, look up I, his cat's name. Then you definitely won't read any, anything <laughs> by him. But it's been around because obviously it was a... It was a uh, d d incorporated a whole bunch of it into um, its you know, play systems. Uh, as well, there is a whole game uh, around the. There are several games around the Cthulhu Mythos, which is um, they're good fun to play, <laughs> to play around with the old powers. Uh, but yeah, I've never actually quite uh, uh, brought myself to around to actually reading them. I think Lovecraft I is one of those. Them. Yeah, Lovecraft is one of those authors where the the ideas of it's his work Lovecraft, have out. Yeah, it is. The it ideas is? of Lovecraft Lovecraft's work have sort of outshined the original works yes. right like the the works are not really what keep him famous it's the ideas and the vibe yeah yeah and he himself seems to have been a a very disturbed uh man who had surely not, very not racist. great <laughs> viewpoints on society and and other human beings that he 
you didn't see as humans, so. Truly. Huh. We'll keep the Cthulhu, we'll leave the Lovecraft. All right, let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we will move on with Ged's journey. And we're back. So now, why don't we talk about the escape, about his, uh, his flight to Ogion and what happens there? Uh, this is also one of the saddest moments when he finds the Otak uh, yes. has passed. It was one a little of, heartbreak moment. One of the few intimate connections he had. And yeah. I think that's the moment when he finally realizes this is not a good place to be and he has yeah. to get out. Yeah. Mm. Well, a moment Ogian. of silence for the Otak. <laughs> yeah. uh, now that we had that sad moment, so Ogian immediately tells him the right answer. Right? Did he not know before this, or I? I don't. It, it seems like pretty on point advice. How did we get here? Well, I think we start with the the foundation of magic is knowing the names of things and. Everybody keeps saying, well, you know, shadows don't have names. And the first time we hear anything to the contrary of that nature, interestingly enough, is from the dragon Yavod. And so, okay. why would Ged have been thinking in those terms if everybody else had been telling him it has no name? I mean, the best he can come up with at mm. this point is, I gotta let him kill me and I'll take him down with me kind of thing. Right. But, I guess um, I guess now that I'm thinking about it, this is the first time he went to Ogian for advice after this event, right? It's the first time he went to Ogian for advice ever. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. His his line is actually, "I have come back to you as I left a fool." A fool. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it's it's fascinating because before we talked about last episode, how Ogian really showed Ged the patience that he tried to teach him, and he didn't force him to stay. He didn't try to force the lessons on him. He said, he'll be back when he's ready. And then he was. He, was, he came back when he was ready to take Ogian's lessons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And once Ogian has said to him, all you've been doing is running, now you have to turn around. Mm. And he sort of talks it out pacing back and forth in the room, you know, well, if I keep on... First, when he was on the island, he said, he realized, well, I can't keep building up these protections and barriers and never sleep because, you know, I'll, I'll die. So now he's pacing back and forth and thinking, well, if I flee forever, I'll waste all my energy and he's still going to catch up with me anyway. So, and then he kneels in front of Ogin and says, I have walked with great wizards and have lived on the Isle of the Wise, but you are my true master, Ogin. Yeah. Nice. And Ogian's good, says Ogian. Now you know it. Better <laughs> now, better now than never. But you will be my master in the end. Yeah. What a humble but not Ooh, humble getting, man. You know what I mean? Like getting all disturbed over here, <laughs> emotional. <laughs> uh, so good. So good. Yeah, and, and it's it's. Interesting, too, it, it, it touches on this thing of a, a truth that you discover yourself is more powerful than any truth that you, you will be told. Of right. course. I mean, you both are fathers. You know that, you know, telling your children things 
<laughs> she's two I and a half. A, she doesn't listen to much anyway. Well, right. Exactly. And I, I was a son. I didn't listen. You know, I, I had to go and discover for myself. Right. Eventually, you do know that those lessons are things that they do have to learn themselves. Because and and that listening that Ogion gives Ged is so powerful. Yes. And, and we'll see says, that again. Yeah. Just just listening to somebody, giving him your attention and your consideration and some stillness to allow somebody else's thoughts and, and, mm -hmm. and movements, spiritual, psychological, whatever, mm -hmm. to come round is so powerful. Yep. Yeah. And of course, Ogin has to leave, get free to make the choice to leave and then free to return when he wants to, because otherwise he's trying to force the process. Yeah. Which is not how you know, Taoism works, and it's not, as Ogian <laughs> knows, it's not the way of good and healthy majory to do that sort of thing. I think one of my single favorite sentences is at the very end of this chapter, Master, I go hunting. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. When you yeah, talk I, about I, concision. Uh, oh, yeah, the, the whole relationship, so vital between the two, and uh, I'm, I'm glad she brought him back when he needed that you know the storyline yep. the story beat it's perfect yeah. for him to be back in the story yeah i hope we get more of him i don't know but you guys do <laughs> you're shaking your head david is that it is that it for ogian well, I, I honestly can't quite remember exactly so i i'm oh not boy. gonna comment it's been so long since i've read any of these books like a couple boy, of decades. oh boy we got a cliffhanger over here yeah we have so. not seen The Last of Ogian. Thank you. Okay. okay good. Excellent. I will say no more. So Ged goes hunting, as we, just, as we just said. He sets out to pursue the shadow, and the shadow tricks him into crashing his boat. Marooned on a strange desert island, Ged encounters a man and woman who have been exiled as children. So another one of these uh, quotes uh, of, of her writing that just really... Uh, stuck out uh, to me is when he's uh, out sailing, he's leaving Gaunt, and um, it's, uh, it goes, there was no sound at all but the small creaking of a boat and light slap of waves on her bow. No boat or bird went by, nothing moved but the ever-moving water and the drifting clouds. The clouds that he remembered dimly as flowing all about him as he, a falcon, flew east on this same course he now followed to the west. And he had looked down on the gray sea, then as now he looked up to the gray air. <laughs> <laughs> Just blows me away. She's pretty good. He's doing a reciprocal you know, course. She's, uh, yeah, yeah and, and she's doing this whole sky, water, mirroring thing, and in one sense... He was fleeing, and now on this other sense, he's hunting, and so he's, an, he's active and he has his agency, whereas before he was just reacting out of survival. And it's just so beautifully packaged together in this, this two sentences. Two sentences? How many sentences? Like three sentences? It's crazy. It just, it just bo boggles my mind. Two. It's, yeah. It's very evocative. And my favorite section from this bit, which is right around yours, David. I can't remember yeah. if it's before or after. 
On the sea he wished to meet it, if meet it he must. He was not sure why this was, yet he had a terror of meeting the thing again on dry land. Out of the sea there rise storms and monsters, but no evil power. Evil is of the earth. And there is no sea, no running of river or spring in the dark land where once Ged had gone. Hmm. Death, death is the dry place. Hmm. Where life is the wet place here. That's the, yeah. Yeah. the, the opposite of that. Yeah. Hmm. And water is constantly in motion, which is the goal yeah. of the Tao, the yin-yang, changes. It's constantly right. changing and moving life-giving so even though you know most of the denizens of earth sea uh get their living from the sea and know it's terror and so forth mm. in the sense of if you don't know what you're doing you can wind It'll up kill in you. a bad case of death <laughs> yes but um still earth is where evil is and again hmm. exploring this concept um this was very definitely associated with female feminine and earth right interestingly though of the four elements of the four elements water is also associated with women air and fire associated with male masculine so right it's an interesting uh, interesting duality there oh speaking of the word duality the yin yang is not dualism it's a binary what I mean by that right. is dualism is almost always in opposition to each other. With a binary, you need both to make a whole. It's only a binary code if you have both zeros and ones. Okay. Right? To get computer-wise right. about it. Right. But when you say dualism, you almost always get into oppositional. Right. Right. So they're dependent and rather than adversarial. Exactly. Well put. Yes. Thank you. Well, and in the dependency here is uh, the get in his shadow, um, and it, it it's interesting because as he's hunting, it's fleeing. So here is our confirmation of the theory that yes. it's it's working. It uh, is such a such an amazing moment. Yeah, such an amazing moment. <laughs> right, because he's taking right. back his agency. He's taking. Uh, uh, he's he's again not fleeing, but he's acting. He's acting out of mm -hmm. intention as opposed mm -hmm. to reacting out of survival. And he's taking a risk again, just like he did with the dragon. Yes, excellent point. Yeah, yeah, excellent point. Because nobody's seem ever to go well with this before. guy when he actually takes a risk. <laughs> well, and no, that's the maybe not when he made the shadow. All right, I take that back. I take that back. That was actually the point of the first half of the book that that he should not take unnecessary risks. So. Right. I'll back off now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the question is on for what reason and on whose behalf are you taking the risk? Right, hmm. right. Hmm. Interesting. And the the shadow is not to be trifled with even when it's being pursued though. It's it's still very clever. Oh yeah. And right. uses its uh what skills it is it has. The right. the whole thing though too with the the castaways on the island it was always such a a strange little interlude uh, but again it was her world building and unknowingly creating space for other stories and other elements of story in in future books 
no spoilers to be given here. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny, though. It's, it, I, I think you're right. It does feel out of place, right? When when yeah. you first read it, I mean, I have no context for this. So I was like, oh, that's weird. I feel like we were just getting going and now we're stranded. Yeah, it, yeah. it, it is really weird. It is a real weird yeah. break. Yeah. Well, interestingly, though, it, it I think it's a clue for us who yeah. don't know the answer to the end of the book because he realizes that the shadow tricked him in the same way that he tricked the Cargats. Uh-huh. uh-huh. By, creating, by creating mist yeah. and drawing uh-huh. him on to a place where he could have been killed. Right. So I think that is a clue. A clue. <laughs> a clue. This is a clue. Oh, yeah. We, we saw all those uh, Inspector Clouseau movies when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, I don't know if they... I, I haven't gone back to, to see them. I, I, I suspect that they're, they will have been dated. Uh, oh, I'm they, they sure they will have the been dead in all kinds of uh, so many gnarly ways. ways. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just all ask right. listeners uh, to remember this point, particularly if you've not read the series before, um, that the princess gives him a handful of raw mussels to eat uh-huh. and as a gift. So keep that in mind for the next book. Okay. Mm. Good. You have me curious. Well, good. That's what I wanted. <laughs> but of course, she she makes us curious without even knowing it. But when she says that, you know, the quest of the ring and the tombs was involved without knowing what the heck that right. was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. And I think it, it also points to something kind of one of these um, more, I don't want to say morality life lessons, but it kind of is that. Is is like you never in your life you never know where you're going to end up mm. so always treat people kindly mm. always be open always you know never never just assume things are what they are in front of you mm. because you have no idea what people are dealing with how they got into that situation why right. they're there mm-hmm. you know by choice or or by not whatever and, you know, some simple kindness goes an immensely long way to, right. and, and you have no idea what, what you will get out of that, and you should, nor should you think about what am I going to get out of this transaction. Right. But that life is always this ever-unfolding mystery, mm-hmm. and um, if we're open to it, then things appear like magic sometimes. Things have a way of working out, and clues to other parts of our life are revealed even when we're not looking for them. You, you can cut this if you want, but just this afternoon, um, I was parking in the lot to go shopping, and it was a difficult park because the car next to me had gone over the line, and it just so happened that the person who in that other car was sitting there, and as I kind of struggled to get out, they said, oh, I'm really sorry, but this other car was over here, and I said, you know, anytime I park anywhere and I see a weirdly parked car, I remind myself, I don't know what the lot looked like, when that car came into park. <laughs> right. So That's I, a good point. Yeah, don't make assumptions about don't make assumptions. the way things are. Yeah. Yeah. All right, counterpoint, though. Have you ever tried to park in New York City? Because um, <laughs> I've yelled in my car about <laughs> uh, somebody's parking job, and I am not ashamed of it. <laughs> you can have your, you can have your emotional proud. response. There's no... No, right. no I'm not getting into a fist fight over this. <laughs> no. I'm not getting into a fist fight over this, but, <laughs> but uh, I will certainly yell... To myself in my car. <laughs> yes. Where did Silent you go to screams. driving school? 
Uh, where did like, I go to driving no, school? No, no, no. I'm, I'm saying that might be something you might be shouting in your car. Right. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Having a hard time right. parking gotcha, because gotcha, somebody gotcha, else gotcha, was gotcha. in the way. Yeah. Gotcha. Great. Also in New York. Maybe that's why I yell. Uh, <laughs> yes. I lived there. I lived there for a time myself. The, mm. the, the final thought on this chapter, he, meaning Gad, now knew, and the knowledge was hard, that his task had never been to undo what he had done, but to finish what he had begun. Ah, mm. uh, you mm. have to you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. They say, yeah. And as we when we get to the end, we'll definitely understand that if this is going to be the guy who's the you know greatest wizard of the age, he can't. He has to become whole. He has to finish this process, right? Because he loses a lot of power, right, after the shadow thing. I mean, they make clear that his, his abilities are lessened for a bit, right? Yes, and then he gains them back, but... Right, <clears throat> but it takes him a long time, and it's... it's I, I think he basically learned to compensate, right? It's like if you have a leg injury, and it doesn't heal right. Like, you might learn to walk on it, and you might learn to, to chew on the side of your mouth that doesn't have a toothache, you know what I mean? Like, you, you compensate <laughs> for your injuries, for but... Lot, yeah. But it doesn't mean that you're necessarily the same. Like I, to me, what, what she was telling me was that he was not at full power until the end of this book. Yes. No, I think that's true because he wasn't whole. Right. At the same time, I, what I, the way I hear it and see it is prior to his calling up the shadow, magic was effortless to him. Uh huh. After the shadow, he had to work and in doing so, I think probably gained a much deeper respect for his abilities and for magic in general. And he, he never took it for granted again. And I mm -hmm. think that's never. a more thoughtful never. place to be, particularly when you have the immense amount of power that he has, that Ogian yeah. saw from the beginning. Yeah. yeah, I think they kind of explored that in his Dark Materials, too, but I don't want to spoil things with that. I don't <laughs> know if either of you are, uh, are familiar with that series. I read the first one and enjoyed it. Um, the second one I was kind of uncomfortable with. I tried to do the third one and had to stop because, once again, it was children who were supposed to save the world, and I just couldn't stand it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I think it's, it's, it's better than most YA novels. You know, it's, it's got a lot deeper themes than most, and I did enjoy the books. Uh, I still have to watch season three, but they toy, toy with that idea of like somebody having a natural ability to do something losing it and then needing to start from scratch and i think that that's always been a cool idea mm. Mm -hmm. interesting so let's move on with the plot if we're all set with this section yeah ged patches his boat this is going to be the end uh of the of the plot summary by the way ged patches his boat and continues his chase and meets his old friend vetch from wizard school vetch pledges to help ged and they pursue the shadow to the far ends of the sea beyond any land known to their people Ged encounters the shadow, names it his own name, and becomes whole. Ged and Vetch return to the known lands. This, you know, like I said, I haven't read this in, in a, maybe a couple of decades, but in the past when I, you know, read it over and over again, as with anything, you know, be it music or a movie, you, you pick up on different details and different things stand forward more which is a, a, a much a measure of yourself and where you are in that moment than, you know, anything about the text. Um, and in this uh, last bit with Vetch, 
it was interesting because this is the thing where in the past I had, I had always sort of breezed through because it's like the chase is on. Come on, man, we got to go. You got to get to you know your thing. Whereas now in this different stage of my life, oh, you know, seeing an old friend and meeting you know relatives and spending time with uh, people that have different experiences and understandings. And you know, I forget uh, Vetch's uh, niece, I believe it is sister. Sister, that's right. His sister, and I forget her name. Uh, Yarrow. Yarrow, since we, it's been a minute since we actually read this for the, the podcast. Um, yes. I was really like, oh, wait a minute. Like, who is this? I don't remember this, you know, this whole sequence when I, you know, from reading before. And I just felt that it was a, a just, it was a very satisfying part of the read for me this time around. And Ged spending time and talking with her and and sharing what he could share and it was it was a really uh, I don't know a bit of a touching moment for me. Yes, I like the way um, she points out that Ged feels most at home with poor people. This is before yeah. he actually sees Betch again, but yeah, um, there's there are a lot of very quiet but significant points that talk about class. Mm-hmm. And unless we forget, we're reminded every so often that, you know, Ged was a goat herder. And right. that was his experience. But oh, then... You, can I just interject that of course. they literally have a character called the main character in Wheel of Time, Sheep Herder, all the time. And now <laughs> I, I, I think that Robert Jordan is just, is just reading Le Guin now. I, I, I think you should definitely check out that... Uh, that supposition, because it, it sounds like you're probably correct. Yeah. Yeah. All right, go on. So, something that came up um, back in the first episode, and I didn't really realize at the time, um, that very moving moment when Vetch entrusts Ged with his true name, Astariel. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By doing so, he helps Ged begin to trust himself again. Yeah. And I'm going to invite listeners to hold that thought, because <laughs> trust makes an important appearance a number of times throughout the yeah. series. Yeah. You know, trusting in self, but also trusting others, kind of like mm. what John was saying earlier. Um, and now we see Astariel Vetch in his own home, in his own place, and it's just this wonderful time of grace and relaxation. Even as Ged knows that it's a limited time and yeah. he can't stay, but he's going to enjoy it. And Vetch says to him, in trouble and from darkness you come, Ged, yet your coming is joy to me. Mm. And later on, Ged says, this is how a man should live mm. inside. Yeah. So, again, economy of words, and yet in that is a whole chapter on what it is not to be a wizard, because Vetch is a wizard, and he still has all this, what it is to be the most powerful wizard diversity. Right, yeah. It's interesting about the trust factor, too, because when you give somebody that gift, it, you know, what, when, when somebody gives us something like that, what does it do to us? Yeah. You know, how, does, how do we respond to that? How do, what, what, mechanisms does that activate in our brain and in our psychology and in our spirit um uh to 
to to be whole, right? Are, you know, can you hold somebody's trust and not be whole? Mm. You know, do you do you actually? Well, have the if somebody to, can to hold confesses that? a felony to you, that might not feel very good. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's true. still a trust thing. It but is. I don't know if I'd enjoy that. No. <laughs> And isn't it interesting that we often talk about our best friends are the ones who knows where the bodies are buried because they helped us bury them. (laughs) (laughs) What's a different spin on it in in some respects. But it's interesting, too, that at some point when Le Guin is describing the whole concept of true names, she says that you don't give your true name to anyone else unless they're very, very close to you because it is a burden. Mm. on the other person right because suddenly it's like it's like you just put your life in their hands yeah and i think this is the reason why um the doorkeeper requires every person who enters the door to give him his true name yeah in part i think it's because Students can get out of hand, and you need to be able to control them. <laughs> That's a very good, very, very good practical you know? reason to know their names. Yeah, right. And so the students know. Okay, um, I yeah, guess I better not name. get up to too many shenanigans here. That's right, um, because I I could be controlled. In that and way. interestingly, um, Ged is able to suss out uh, Yaro's name just by yes. thinking about her and knowing her, just thinking a- of her. Mm-hmm. And, and Vetch just looks at him like, you are Mageborn. Her new- true name is Kest, you know, which means Minnow. And yeah. he's- Vetch is just like, dude, like, how <laughs> did you do that? You just, yeah. and, and in, the re- in the writing, we get it because he just meditates for a moment on her nature and on her being mm-hmm. and what what she is showing to the world. Yeah. Right? We mm-hmm. all show ourselves in all very di- different ways and we disguise ourselves and we show ourselves, you know, uh, our actions speak louder oftentimes than our words. Mm-hmm. Um and and yet um it, it all of that can be penetrated by just being present in a moment mm-hmm. and and letting Letting the the thoughts and the and the reflections come come to the surface. And then what does what does Ged say right after? You should not have told me her name. Maybe. At which point Vetch responds. Uh, but Vetch, who had not done so lightly, said, "Her name is safe with you." Ooh, I'm gonna get emotional here. <laughs> her name is as safe with you as mine is, and besides, you knew it without telling, uh, without me telling you. That mm. is why he is yeah. the most powerful mage. Yeah. He can suss the, the out The nature names. of magic and mages, magery is to know true names of things. And yeah. right. he was just doing it in, as you say, a moment of reflection. Things yeah. rose to the surface and there they were. Yeah. Can one change their true name after the initial giving? Because, I mean, people are ever-changing, right? I mean... I, I think most of us are not the same person we were 10 years ago. Didn't the... Was it not the master changer? It was somebody else who, who talked to him about changing the... Um, uh, like transmutation. About mm-hmm. actually changing uh, something into something else and how it... What it really requires. But I but I mean, if I'm if I'm Ged and I'm... Yeah. You know... Say, I, I decided too many people know my name. <laughs> and I don't really feel <laughs> you get like a legal get name change. There's all these books out there. <laughs> I don't really feel like uh, I, I get anymore. 
can I change my change my name to Jed? You know what I mean? Like I just, I'm, I'm curious. You know, I'm thinking of the the Jewish tradition of if someone is uh, deathly ill, if someone's very mm-hmm. ill, sometimes mm-hmm. you will change the Hebrew name that you use in the prayer to help them avoid the sight of death, to help to make it harder for death to find them by name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting to think of it like that comparison. Is there something similar in the Earthsea series? Well, we're told that when Ged is ready to leave, and he's supposed to figure out the doorkeeper's name, you know, we're told that wizards in particular hide their names with spells and, and evasions okay. and, and so okay. on and so on and so on. Um, and then, of course, in the end, it's real simple. You just ask him, can you tell me your name? And he tells him his name. I've never heard of anything of that nature. I think that the whole notion of the... That master changers, Gil, you are. I don't know that you're changing the names of things, but you are changing their nature. Um, but right. that's that's just my um, my supposition. My 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 sense is that Le Guin is presenting us with a universe in which there is some fundamental core of each person, and that is. The true okay. name, which does not change. I don't remember. Do you, David? Do you remember any instances of of somebody changing their true name? Mm-mm, nope. I mean, so once Ogion says your name is Ged, then I, it doesn't matter if he hates the name. That's it. He, that's just his name. Well, but he can pick whatever use name he wants. Okay, right. So. I, that's true. He's like, I'm, I'm Sparrowhawk. How modest. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if this is going to enlighten this part of the discussion at all, but I was just thinking about this one other. Uh, as, uh, uh, interaction with Yarrow mm. and she asks him uh, tell me just this if it's not a secret what other great powers are there besides the light mm. and Ged says it is no secret all power is in one source and end I think years and distances stars and candles water and wind and wizardry the craft in a man's hand and the wisdom in a tree's root they all arise together my name and yours, and the true name of the sun, or a spring of water, or an unborn child, are all syllables of the great word that is verily, very, <laughs> whew, sorry, <laughs> this writing is like powerful, um, that is very slowly spoken by the shining of the stars. There is no other power, no other name. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just sit with that for a while. <laughs> Let that marinate. Woo! All hot and sweaty over here. <laughs> and that is the nature of magic on Earthsea. Yeah. Recognizing that and, and knowing it and studying it lifelong. So, yeah, can you change? I mean, I don't know, but it does, does it matter that you change your name? You can forget your name. Mm-hmm. Oh. And in the third book, we'll see what comes of that. Um, mm. Not to spoil too much, I don't think I am. Um, All right. And I'm, I actually, I'm intrigued. Actually, I, there is... I think there is a moment when someone is given another name. Interesting. Okay. So, ho- hold that question, John, for, for, right. the far, for the farthest shore. I gotta find a, a writing on this Jewish tradition, too. I feel like that would be fun to compare and contrast with that. Yes, I'd, I'd heard of it, but I've, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to hear you describe it. So, 
th- this whole idea of the the sea, the land beyond the seas, right? I mean, yeah. they, what a you know, again, he's taking a huge risk to solve his problem here. He's sailing out without enough rations and water to get anywhere known. And and I, I for a minute I was actually concerned. I was like, where where's he going, guys? I mean, uh, <laughs> what's, what, what's happening here? But it, it works out, and and what a lovely testament to Vetch's loyalty that he goes with him and doesn't question him. Seriously, though he does also have a very practical reason. It is what's trust, that? yes, and he has decided that if Ged should fail, well, as he says to Ged, if you fail then somebody needs to tell the rest of the wizards. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? Hey, there's this bad dude out there now. We got we to gotta deal with that now. If he can and, get away. <laughs> and even after, you know, Ged and his shadow are joined in our one, for a couple of hours, Vetch is sailing the boat by himself as Ged recovers, and he's got his hand within reach of the anchor. Right. Because he doesn't down. know yet. Yeah. Is Ged whole, or did the Gebeth right. win? And if the Gebeth won, then I'm whole in this boat, and we're going to sink right. to the bottom of whatever ocean this is. Okay, in fairness, did he really need to get on the boat with him before knowing? I mean, he could have let him nap on the beach for a little bit and figured it out there. I mean, it's... The beach had know. gone. There was no more beach. There was no oh, water. okay, right, right, right. right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay, see, it's been a while since I read this too now. Yeah. So what about the uh, this ending here, this this creating this wholeness? Are, are you going to read it, or am I? Uh, I don't think I can read it. I'll probably start crying if I do, okay. so I think you should read it. All righty. <laughs> are you beginning, are, you, are the one, and he began to see the truth? Is that the line? I'm, I'm, that is, but I'm, I'm starting a little earlier than that. Okay, good. It's all right. all right. Fair enough. Aloud and clearly breaking that old silence... Ged spoke the shadow's name, and in the same moment the shadow spoke, without lips or tongue, saying the same word, Ged. And the two voices were one voice. Ged reached out his hands, dropping his staff, and took hold of his shadow, a black self that reached out to him. Light and darkness met and joined and were one. And then skipping ahead a little. Estariel, he said, look, it is done. It is over. He laughed. The wound is healed, he said. I am whole. I am free. Then he bent over and hid his face in his arms, weeping like a boy. Until that moment, Vetch had watched him with an anxious dread, for he was not sure what had happened there in the dark land. He did not know if this was Ged in the boat with him, and his hand had been for hours ready to the anchor, to stave in the boat's planking and sink her there in mid-sea, rather than carry back to the harbors of Earthsea the evil thing that he feared might have taken Ged's look and form. Now when he saw his friend and heard him speak, his doubt vanished, and he began to see the truth, that Ged had neither lost nor won, but, naming the shadow of his death with his own name, had made himself whole, a man who, knowing his whole true self, cannot be used or possessed by any power other than himself, and whose life thereafter is lived for life's sake, and never in the service of ruin or pain or hatred or the dark. See, I couldn't quite make it either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll carry us through. I'm, I'm without tears just yet. 
<laughs> but boy, beautiful, beautiful last line. I mean, what a what a beautiful idea of you know yourself, you are comfortable with yourself, and if you love yourself that way, then who can come between yourself and you? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's part of the answer to your question about can you change your true name? Mm, yeah. Right. <laughs> you're just running away from yourself if you're changing your true name. I think that's true. I think so. Yeah. And this idea that the this the pains that we hold on to are, you know, if we don't reconcile with them, you know, whether it's transgressions that we've committed or, you know, you know, trespasses against us. Um, you know, are you reciting we, the the Catholic? It, no, it's not we, just Catholic. As man. we commit we trespasses out. against us, as as those, we, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but it's not Catholic. I mean, it's not Catholic alone. I mean, we did it in the Presbyterian Church. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, was yeah, our yeah. our phraseology. It's 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 Christian soup. Yeah, we'll call. Yes, it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> my dad used to say, "And lead us not into Penn Station." You know, that was a big <laughs> joke. <laughs> <laughs> just crack Station. up your kids. Yeah. That's funny. I could I could see myself doing that. Having, yeah, just, just a little bit of temptation, kid. please. No, no, you're too young. You're too young. <laughs> but yeah, this idea that you know we because we're all we're all the world is going to hurt us and we're going to hurt the world. That is just a, yeah. a, a, a truism that mm -hmm. you know no matter how tr how much you try to not f up your kids, you're going to f up your kids. There's nothing you can't. It's human relationships, right? And we 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 bump into each other. We step on each other's toes. We do things intentionally and unintentionally that are going to constantly cause, you know, strife and turmoil. And so, unless we're working on healing those things and trying to create wholeness, we're going to carry around those dark shadows. And those are the things that, you know, as they say, hurt people hurt people, right? Um, and it's not until we can be heal, heal, constantly healing ourselves can we uh, alter that dynamic. For me, I have to accept those parts of myself. Yeah, yeah. As get accepts the shadow in order to be whole. Yeah. I'm not going to get rid of them. Right. If, if I'm lucky, I can learn how to dial down the volume on them. But if I try to pretend that I don't have them, that they're not a part of me, that's when they're going to get the sneaky and start to rule me. Right. And I won't even know it. You've got to turn your, you know, what you've perceived as faults into strengths at some point. I mean, for, for example, I mean, I have been a hyper fixator my whole life. <laughs> I will get obsessed with something and then I will drop it. And after a certain point, I realized it's actually a really effective way to gather a large amount of information in a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's how we ended up with the Second Age podcast. Absolutely. I was just going to say, yeah, we, and, if you didn't have that skill, we wouldn't have this podcast. And that's the point is like, you know, we all have our, our faults. We all have things that we, we wish we could change about ourselves. And then when you finally realize, okay, maybe that's not a fault. That's just part of who I am. I think yeah, it makes it yeah. a lot easier to deal with it. Of course, there's many things that I'm still uncomfortable that with myself just like we all are right but yeah. i i think the more we can turn inward and and find that acceptance of ourselves, like ged does the better off we can be going forward yeah and then we can be in our masters of ourselves and actually control right man, use those things to our advantage and not our unknowing disadvantage like you said marilyn if you if we don't know that those things are in control 
yes boy you know you're in a world of awkwardness there and, and <laughs> at you a minimum be possessed by yeah any yeah. of them you know right you, you give Would them you, what house room you have to but they're not in the driver's seat to mix my metaphors ridiculously <laughs> We haven't uh, one of one other great science fiction work we have not touched on in in all of our sort of uh, conversations and comings and goings is uh, with Frank Herbert and Dune, and I'm uh, mm. just thinking about this whole concept um, that starts out in the book where Paul is uh, tested, um, and he's tested to see if he's human or not, or if he's an animal. Hmm. Where an animal will react and survive and will lash out. Well, an, an animal will gnaw off its own uh, leg to escape from a trap. Where a human can use their reason and their intellect to work their way through the trap and actually, you know, control themselves to a degree. Unless, um, of course, you're with Mad Max and he, he's lighting the, the keg on fire. He's lighting the car on fire. He's like, you know, you could either saw through your leg or you can saw through your cuff. <laughs> And you got a choice. I mean, David, I'm never going to forgive you for making me watch that movie. So for those of us, for those who are listening to this <laughs> podcast who don't know, on our second breakfast, which is a, a Patreon exclusive breakfast where John and I talk about uh, other things that we're not actively podcasting about, we've got into this uh, tradition of uh, making each other, not making each other, but uh, having each other watch movies that we haven't seen. And so, um, and it's part of the patrons can vote on, on which movie after we make some selections. And so... John ended up having to see the original uh, Mad Max movie, the very first one of the series. And uh, it's a very strange film, I agree. Well, one, one thing that I wanted to, um, again, plant a marker on here is um, at the climax of, of his quest, Ged talks about being free and then he weeps. Yeah, yeah. Hold that scene in your mind, particularly mm. it's set in an open boat. Um, okay. It will be familiar when we, well, I will say no more. But you've got, you've got all these markers written down for us too, right? So you'll, you'll, well, I've got, back when we... uh, that one's in my head, but you know, okay. I'm sure it'll come back. We, uh, you know, I, I just want to point out they are very low on water right now. And, uh, Ged is just leaking out his, all his water <laughs> into the ocean. Not a good move, Ged. Stop Fair your enough. tears. Ah, but now you see they can use their magic and they can desalinate the seawater, so they got plenty there of water. There you go. All and right, they can fine. they can fish, although the fish don't know their own names here, so far away from the center of magic, Ooh. so they don't catch as much fish as they might. But I, I, that was an interesting thought too, sort of this observer theory of magic. Mm. That, you know, um, in the center of the archipelago where there is um, the, mass, the, the, the higher population percentage of people and there is agree some sort of, I guess you could say, agreement about the names of things and there's relationships between the things and the namers and the further that you go out away from it, the, the perspective shifts. Yeah. And as you, your observer, as the observer, you things change for you as you get out there. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a weird observer theory thing, but it's also this other thing where, well, if there is no conversation between the named and the namer, how does something not, you know, how does something that doesn't have somebody giving it a name know its name? Yeah. Yeah. So. I am fish. What more do you need to know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know that I'm fish. Yeah, yeah. I'm just out I here. think that's that's part of her her anthropological cultural right um, understandings of what it means to have a name and be named. 
And of course, the very, 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 very ancient belief that to name a thing is to have power over it. Right. Well, I think that's a good note to leave this recap on. Let's take a quick break. And when we get back, let's get into feedback. And we're back. Okay, I think we're ready to get into feedback. So I'll be the reader since everybody else knows more than me about this series. Okay. Loremaster Nancy M via Patreon says, Okay, now for Book Nook. So good. After listening to episode one, I ordered a large illustrated book that Marilyn <laughs> recommended, even though I had already purchased a Wizard of Earthsea to be ready for episode one. During the show, I kept imagining that I was in a classroom with Marilyn in front <laughs> providing a lecture. What an amazing teacher she must have been, and her former students should consider themselves very lucky. I'm glad that you are taking the time to delve into book one and not trying to squeeze it into one episode. I am new to this author and series and found the world magical and the characters complicated and interesting, and not the usual 2D types. So giving us more than one episode to go through the book is very much appreciated. I'm so looking forward to exploring this world with you. Marilyn, are, are you uh, feeling the praise? Are you feeling the warmth <laughs> of the patrons? I'm feeling like a tomato blushing. <laughs> <laughs> we are I'm an audio-only podcast, but I'll confirm. I, I, I am definitely feeling the warmth and the love. That, that's, that's just very sweet. Um, I certainly treasured the times that I had in the classroom with students going over all kinds of amazing literature. And uh, the thought that I might be recreating it in some fashion is, is delightful. So thanks so much, Nancy. Now you've just got 5,000 students per lecture. Yeah. <laughs> and what and are who'd, the odds? Have thunk, who'd have thunk that a, uh, a question that John... Well, here you go. This just goes exactly back to the thing about the, you know, the two castaways on the island. You never know what life is going to bring you. John and I scratching our heads trying to wonder what a Barovian was. Uh, <laughs> and look what popped out of a, a hole in the ground uh, was a hobbit. Well, no, you're not a hobbit, but, but a professor... <laughs> named uh, Marilyn and uh, aren't we lucky so aren't we lucky all of us well next up we've got a voicemail from loremaster brian8063 let's play that now hi john david and marilyn this relates to a wizard of earth sea and i hope i get this recording in before you do part 2 I wonder if you could comment on the influence of Le Guin's parents, who were scholars. A Wizard of Earthsea really has a feel for anthropology as Jed navigates through the islands. I also see the influence of Taoism here, where it seems that the harder Jed hunts for the shadow, the more aggressive the shadow is. Is this the yin and yang opposite forces in play here? Thanks again for all your great insight in this wonderful book. It's truly an amazing book. And I look forward to the rest of the series. Brian Craig, a.k.a. BAC8063 and BAC4077, depending on your platform. Thanks. Thank you, Brian. Yes, it's true that her parents were very much erudite and scholarly. Uh, she was the daughter of Alfred Krober and Theodora Krober. Uh, Alfred was the leading expert on California Indian cultures, and he founded the anthropology department at the University of California, Berkeley. He was also a storyteller who liked to tell tales around the campfire on summer nights. And he spent much of his career going around California on foot, 
or by horse, talking to survivors of destroyed peoples. He was the one who found, quote-unquote, the last living member of the Yahi tribe um, back in 1911. And then her mother, Theodora, was the one who wrote the book Ishi, Last of His Tribe, which some of you may have heard of. She also wrote children's books, and it was Le Guin's mother's editor who first asked Le Guin to consider writing a YA book. So, a lot of the in influence of anthropology is obvious in the books that Le Guin writes. As it says in the Bibliothèque Nationale page on Le Guin, her work focused on the ethical and spiritual aspects of alterity and of taking the perspective of the other into account. So I think mm. that definitely speaks to uh, the impact of having two anthropologists in the house. Right. Having that curiosity about others. But also recognizing some pretty basic principles that a lot of people don't always live with. Uh, my favorite example of this is um, instead of saying that is a chair, you say that is what we call a chair. Mm -hmm. Right. Gotcha. Point of view. Point of view, also uh, not privileging one culture over another. Mm -hmm. um, curiosity for stories, all those kinds of things were, were melded in there, I think. And as far as Taoism goes, I think we've been sprinkling that pretty liberally. Yeah, oh, pretty yeah. liberally. I yeah. think we've already answered that. That one's answered. <laughs> um, although it's interesting, you know, the, the, the idea that Ged's shadow gets more aggressive as Ged pursues it. Um, yeah, he, he cer it certainly gets more crafty, but he's drawing ideas from Ged in the way that he, he raised the fog, the way Ged had raised the fog. I mean, yeah. I, I, I see them as really coming closer together. Um, and when he grapples with him at one point, we didn't actually mention this in our recaps, but um, at one point he's in that really narrow fjord and suddenly yeah, realizes the, the shadow's behind him and he turns around really fast and they grapple and his hands go right through it and the shadow melts away. Um, yeah, but there's, I mean, the process of yin and yang is just manifest over and over once you start looking for it, I think. Very cool. Well, thank you for writing in, Brian, and thanks so much for being a lore master. We love to hear from you. Next up is Eric T., who also left a voicemail at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Let's play that now. Hi, everybody. I love the show, um, uh, and I really love the Earthsea books. Um, this is a spoiler for book four, so maybe this one gets saved for later. Um, I love the way that um, Le Guin was able to come back and sort of lovingly reimagine her own books to sort of address some of the, the challenges in the first ones, both in terms of how she had the underworld set up um, and the role of women in Earthsea. And I wondered, um, Marilyn, if you would say anything about how that um, relates to her much later novel, Lavinia, where she reimagines the Aeneid um, uh, uh, from the perspective of a character who doesn't even have words in the, in the first uh, original ancient version. Thank you, and keep up all the great work. Thank you, Eric. It's a really interesting question. I'll start by saying I've read Livia a long time ago, and I'm going to say most of the 
answer about relating the revision of Tahanu till later on when we're actually talking about Tahanu, I think, because there's a great essay, which you probably know, Earthsea Revisioned, in which she goes into great detail about that very subject. I will point out, though, that, as I think we already mentioned tonight, um, she's very interested in stories about people who are overlooked and undervalued, which is sort of one of the definitions for alterity. It's basically otherness. So, in addition to that, she's interested in people who are overlooked, who are unexpectedly given power, and how are they going to deal with that? Hmm. So these are definitely themes that you see, and not just in the Earthsea series. Um, it's something that I learned from my Tolkien studies that has been called the epistemic regime. I think that okay. was Dr. Michael Drought who came up with that. That a story is often best told by the person who knows the least about what's going on. And they then hmm. stand in for us as readers and ask, hopefully, a lot of the questions that we might be asking ourselves. Um, because, you know, what is a mage and, and where is Roke and, you know, how do you raise a mage wind? All these kinds of questions. Ged, as a child and a student, is learning these same things. And so we see things through his eyes. Of course, we see him through his eyes because this is a coming of age story and he's the one who's coming of age. But nevertheless, she takes it kind of a step further and says, no, I want to tell the stories of the people who are on the margins, who we don't know as much about. For one thing, that means I don't have to tell endless stories about war and conquest and violence and things that she found, frankly, uninteresting. Hmm. So by telling the stories of those who are normally overlooked, she's uncovering whole new aspects to things that we thought we knew. And that is definitely uh, something that she does with intention and quite beautifully, I think. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that idea of picking, picking someone who is not familiar <laughs> with sure. it. Like, like, you wouldn't tell the Lord of the Rings from Gandalf's perspective. It wouldn't be very interesting, right? And it'd give away a lot of secrets. It would give away a lot of secrets. You know, keep it secret. Keep it safe. You can't. <laughs> so next up, we have Loremaster Mike G by email. Hey there, I've been listening to your show since your second age primer that really helped me get the most out of Lord of the Rings and Rings of Power, I enjoy your lore-based approach and kudos for mostly avoiding the pyroclastic meltdown that put me off of other T-Rop podcasts. I, I don't ever want to hear that phrase again, even. I agree with you. That was I was so tired of talking about lava and, and magma and whatever else you want to talk about by the end of that show. I am glad it is gone I had forgotten about it for a while, and now it is back. Since then, <laughs> you've helped me discover new shows, The Wheel of Time, The White Lotus, The Last of Us, and new books, The Wheel of Time, The Silmarillion, and A Wizard of Earthsea that I probably would not have watched or read otherwise. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome, Mike G., and thank you for being a lore master and for writing in and being a part of our community. That being said... Here's a thought I had while, when listening to your latest Ted Lasso episode. I feel like the season, the theme of season three so far is and Ged's journey in the first book are very similar, except and acknowledge, i.e. name your whole self. All the best from Switzerland, Mike G. Marilyn, do you watch Ted Lasso? 
afraid I don't. There's oh, only you gotta, so many hours in the day. There are. We, we, oh. we understand There's that. There's so many books oh, to yeah. read. And even, you know, this most treasured of podcasts to me, putting out episodes week after week, I, I just, I can't do it. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> That's all right. But we this understand. is something, we live this it. is something that I've posited throughout the season is Ted Lasso this season is very be true to thyself. If yeah, you want, sure. if you want to succeed, stop trying to use somebody else's tactics. Stop trying to use somebody else's strengths. Figure mm-hmm. out what your own strengths are and use those. And mm-hmm. so I, I like this that that Mike has connected Ted Lasso to Earthsea. What a what a weird connection that I would not have expected. Yeah, yeah, it's um. It's a long way from from England to Earthsea, isn't it? It is. It is. David, do you agree on this take? Since you're familiar with the football league, yeah, I was just actually thinking about because um, we're about to record uh, episode four, right? And yep. uh, in this one, there's a whole sequence where somebody's not been dealing with their emotional, yep. the reality of what's underneath that's going on for them, and they get called out on it, yeah. and that hidden set of stuff is actually affecting the entire team. There's a right. lot more going going on there, and it's only when we start to acknowledge and uh, name those things that then then the people can start to have power over them. And the end of, of episode four of season three, Ted Lasso, hits right home into this very, very big question, and it's we see right. a particular character come around on something and is able to name something, and it is so poignant, and it is so beautiful, and it is just, it is really, really great. Right. Naming something that's bothering you gives you power over it, whereas bottling it up poisons you. I think that's yeah. part of, I think I've mushed together a bunch of things that they said in the episode, but that's yeah, basically yeah, the gist. Yeah. yeah. What I find interesting in listening to you describe it is, Earthsea, as we said, was written, you know, back in, what, 69? 66? 60... He- I think it's 68, so I think we should just list the whole later 60s. (laughs) People in that time period were not talking about inner reflections. No, right, right. Except for the really weird people who were going to, you know, hippie encounters and and, the women were just starting on on consciousness-raising groups. And so there was some of it burbling, but it was definitely not mainstream. So here we are now, I think there's been a lot more, and I think it's a very good thing that there's been a lot more openness to what you were just saying, David, about the importance of naming the thing, and you too, John, um, naming it, owning it, um, as a way of of healing it and not letting it rule you. Um, Well, and it's also this idea of putting, you know, society, especially, you know, Western society has put this intelligence over emotion hierarchy out there right. for a long time right and you know you i've actually i've, I've taken a class on like feminist theory and and the, my professor had posited she's a brilliant writer uh she had posited that uh it, it is a feminine versus masculine thing where people associate emotion with femininity and therefore mm-hmm. place it secondary to logic yeah. whereas really emotion is just as valid as logic and you need emotion to have a healthy outlook and have a healthy reasoning but you know it's it's this it's this uh sort of soft misogyny that keeps emotion looked down upon 
And not just that, but I think you even look at how fantasy and science fiction have been looked at, uh, looked down upon by a lot of academics because they feel <laughs> like it's it's not really, you know, teaching you something about the world, right? It's not really, you know, it's it couldn't really happen. But the whole point of these stories is that, that, is that they are about emotion at their core. They are teaching you an emotional lesson. And no, you're not going to learn how to how to do something in the real world, you know, literally from a wizard of Earthsea, but you might learn how to address your own demons, right? And 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 sort of be truer to your own heart. And that's something that I think you get out you get more out of speculative fiction with that kind of thing than you do with more, let's say, realistic fiction. Hmm. I, I agree. I think too, you could carry it a little further and say that emotion is gendered in so far as Certain emotions are culturally permissible in Western culture right, to right. to men and males. Anger being the primary one, right? Whereas other emotions are are supposedly categorized as female, feminine. Um, yeah. And to my mind, let's get rid of the gender labels and just say these sure, are human yeah. human emotions, human experiences. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And as and as far as the the whole thing about fantasy not being worthy of study. I'm going to quote somebody now, and I don't know who said it, and I apologize. And if anybody knows who this is, write in and tell me, please. If you're going to throw out fantasy as an appropriate subject for scholarly research and consideration, then you have to get rid of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Well, I think you can look no further than Michael Livingston, who I believe said that. Uh, in Was it Michael book, Livingston? And then we discussed, we, I, we at least discussed this idea on That's our right. podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Thank you. And uh, I think he's. I think he used Beowulf as an example. You know, Beowulf you have to is another Beowulf. example. Right. 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 You have to throw out Dante's Inferno. Yeah. You have to throw out all these. All these things. Yeah. That yep. are considered classics of literature. So. Yep. I'm not worried. <laughs> I mean. Well, we went pretty worried. deep on that one. Uh, Lastly, I just want to bring in Alicia from our Discord, friend of the pod, has contributed to a bunch of our Mando episodes this season, did write a long message in the Discord uh, about the etymology of Ea, and I thought that was very interesting. I would encourage people to go read that if they haven't. Well, thank you everyone for writing in. Again, if you want to write in, you can go to book at thelorehounds.com or thelorehounds.com slash contact. I love that we got voicemails on this one. We don't often get voicemails, but when we do, it's a lot of fun. John, uh, before we uh, wrap up, we do have to do one thing, which is to thank our patrons uh, who are our supporters. And every podcast, we like to give a shout out to our Loremaster patrons. Um, we have three levels, a three, a five, and a 10. And uh, one of the benefits is to get your name called out when you're a, a $10 supporter. Um, but thank you to all of our patrons. You guys make it very possible for us to be able to produce these podcasts because there are real costs involved. It's not just, you know, buying a couple of microphones, but there's ongoing stuff and it makes a big difference. So without further ado, uh, some Martian, Cyrus, Mark H, Michael G, Michelle E, David W, Brian P, Nick W, SC, Peter OH, Bettina W, Adam S, Nancy M, Lavinia T, Duve, 71, Brian, 8063, Frederick H, Sarah L, and Gareth C. Thank you all so very, very much. We really appreciate your support and, um, and your continuing contributions. So thanks. 
Boy, that list is getting long, and I am getting more grateful every time. (laughs) Let's talk about what we're doing for the rest of April quickly. Uh, So we just put out Second Breakfast. If you're listening on the public feed, this might be out before Second Breakfast on the Patreon feed, so don't panic if you don't see it yet. But we just put out Second Breakfast on our Patreon feed. It's eggs, and we didn't mean to do that with Easter, but we did. So we're talking (laughs) about eggs, and Raising Arizona is going to be the movie that we're reviewing, because I I put a bunch of Nick Cage movies together, and I had David pick three, and then the patrons voted and picked Raising Arizona, pulled ahead of The Wicker Man last minute, and uh, it was very exciting. It was really riveting. I was just watching that poll go. So we had a fun time, and we're looking forward to releasing that. Then, uh, every week we have The Mandalorian Season 3 going. I think we're having a a, a big, you know, breakfast with our jammies on uh, while we (laughs) watch this Saturday morning cartoon. Right. And uh, and so we're, we're on the spaceship. We're just, we're just rolling with it, guys. And it's, it's been a blast. Then also weekly, we have Ted Lasso season three. You know, we mentioned that in this podcast, we talked about how it has similar themes there. So join us and find out how a British football league is related to a fantasy book. Finally, I just want to mention that Silmarillion Stories is coming out on April 24th, where we're going to be talking with special guest Mary Clay from That's What I'm Talking About, about a Thingol and Melian, which is a short it's a short story, a very good story. Very I think it's yeah. uh, it's uh, one of the the more uh, pop culturey ones. I think it's one that that uh, I, I think more people generally know in the Tolkien Legendarium, and I'm excited to get to that story with her. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for being with us. Don't forget to come back next month for the Tombs of Atuan and to send in your feedback before then. Thanks for listening. The Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by The Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>